You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation as we continue our exposition. And tonight we're beginning with chapter 3. And you will find this on page 1029 of the Pew Bible. These are the seven letters to the churches. Jesus is speaking. And this particular church is in Sardis. We're looking at Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The city of Sardis was situated on a hill overlooking the Hermas Valley. And it was the capital of Lydia. And being on a hill, it was practically impregnable. So you can imagine that this was a very strategic military outpost. And in fact, it was legendary for its riches under King Croesus, famed for his pride and his arrogance. And in the wake of that particular king followed an egotistical, luxuriant, and self-conceited people, Sardis. In Sardis also stood the Acropolis, a fortress that was 800 feet above the north end of the city. It had rock walls that were nearly vertical, and it was a refuge for citizens in time of siege. It had only one point of access along a narrow strip leading up the south side, and that point of access was easily fortified, so it was very difficult to breach the Acropolis. And in the history of Sardis, the fortress had been captured only twice, in 549 by the Greeks and in 218 by the Romans. Hendrickson said, one unobserved, unguarded weak point, the one chance in a thousand for a night attack by skillful mountain climbers was all that was necessary to deal a crushing blow. And that had happened twice. Well, the memory of those defeats lingered in their minds, much like Pearl Harbor or 9-11 lingers in ours. And perhaps this is behind the imagery of coming like a thief at an hour that's unknown 
The Christians in Sardis were materially prosperous, but spiritually declining and declining rapidly. In terms of their religious concerns, they had long sunk into something like a spiritual stupor. And the sun was setting, so to speak, on the prospect of this particular church surviving. So we start out, as we do in all the letters, with the title of Christ in verse 1. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And once again, we see how he uses the number seven, which is a sacred number with symbolic significance. I hope you see that. There are many examples of this throughout the Old and New Testaments. On the seventh day, God finished his work, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Noah took seven pairs of clean animals. Abraham cut seven or cut the covenant with seven lambs, and Jacob served seven years. Joseph mourned seven days, and the lampstand had seven lamps, and the high, sprinkle, high priest sprinkled the blood seven times. To capture Jericho, seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. The New Testament church chose seven deacons. In Revelation, there are seven churches, seven spirits, seven stars, seven seals, seven bowls, and seven plagues. Seven has been called the number of perfection. Fullness, rest, completion. And Christ is revealing here himself as having the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Complete. He himself told us in chapter 1 that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. These are his ambassadors appointed to make known the riches of his grace. Seven angels of the seven churches. And the light of the gospel and the strength of the influence of Christ under his immediate supervision makes those churches living. The, seven, the phrase seven spirits is confusing to some because they say to me, well, isn't there just one Holy Spirit? Well, of course, there is just one Holy Spirit, which is why seven here is symbolic of the Spirit's fullness. Jesus gives all the richness and the abundance of the life-giving spirit to his church. He poured it out on Pentecost. And so if the church is strong, it's because he sent his spirit to strengthen the church. And if the church is weak, it's because he withdrew or is withdrawing the gracious influence of his Holy Spirit. Jesus said to his disciples, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And only Christ's life-giving spirit in all of his fullness can bring the dead to life. You know that as well as I do. How important to a church of which the king says you are dead. Sunk in spiritual deadness, the lamp of faith waning, almost extinguished. Only a spirit-filled gospel ministry could revive and recover and bring it to life. This is how Christ conveys grace by means of his word and spirit. Paul says we are saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. And our king does this in his church. And he does so manifesting his power and his truth and his goodness. And the spirit leads those who accept the terms of salvation and receive salvation to cry, Abba, Father, children of God. It is the cry of those freed from the most grievous of all slaveries, the guilt and power of sin. 
So that's Christ, but then he talks about the condition of the church. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. And there is unlikely anything else that Jesus could have said to that church that hurt as much as this. Sardis had a name about town. They had a reputation of being a vibrant church, but they were dead. They enjoyed a good reputation. They had past achievements. They were a light in the community, or so they thought. And perhaps they were basking in the glow of a previous endeavor. They were financially endowed. Their coffers were full. And prosperity and success, as you see here, as in other places, are threats to the spiritual life of any church. And of this reputable church, the reigning Christ says, I know your works. It was a peaceful church. Not the peace of the gospel, but the peace of a graveyard. They didn't trouble anyone. They didn't gain the attention of anybody. It was a lifeless relic. Lifeless in their handling of the truth, lifeless in their service of worship, lifeless in the fulfillment of their ministry. You're dead. They were living off the fading reputation of prior generations, and their faith was basically a sham. Any faithful service or sincere worship or love for Christ was really in the past. And of course, as you you know and I know, our society is littered with grand church buildings that are spiritual mausoleums. Those beautiful structures testify to the vibrancy of past generations. And like so often in church history, Sardis had become too friendly with the culture. They were no longer salt and light. They did not have the savor to preserve. They did not have the illumination to expose. There was no really appreciable difference between the lives within the church and the lives without. They were dead. And almost the entire congregation had soiled their garments with worldliness. As I said, the past generations in Sardis had gained respect and esteem through their good works, but the current generation curried the favor of their society through compromise. And somehow the majority of this church was deceived into thinking they were alive. The church in Sardis was a little bit like the proverbial frog that failed to sense the rising temperature of the water in which he sat until finally he was boiled to death because he never jumped out of the pan. And there are at least four things that lead to self-deception. First, natural deceit of the human heart, which is deceitful above all things. The sinful heart is the most crafty and subtle cheat, a betrayer within our own chests. Steve Jobs, you know who that was, of Apple fame, he said this, and I quote, Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. Everything else is secondary. The worst deception is false reasoning, drawing the wrong conclusions like he did. We're told in Proverbs 28, 26, that he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Your heart and my heart is not a trustworthy guide. 
Do not make your life decisions by following your heart, despite what Hallmark tells you. Jesus Christ is strong and wise, and the heart is deceptive and wicked. And God's verdict of the human heart as it stands is emphatic, unflattering, and pointed. And there's no question, it is deceitful above all else. So number one that leads to self-deception is the natural deceit of the human heart. Number two, the malicious cunning of the devil who is devoted to the destruction of souls. Paul warns in 2 Corinthians 2, Do not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. He has great knowledge, we have to admit it. He has deep malice and long experience in deception. And through the centuries of constant practice, he has developed methods and schemes and strategies so that the Bible says the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. He's very good at what he does. And by diabolical schemes, he is leading a whole world of deluded sinners to hell. So first, the natural deceit of the human heart. Second, the malicious cunning of the devil. And third, an incorrect view of the Spirit's common influences. In other words, mistaking common operations for true grace. He convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He pricks the conscience of the unbeliever. And some realize that there will be a reckoning at the end of time. Some of the unbelievers feel conviction, but they're not transformed by it. This is why we read in Hebrews 6, some have been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. They came very close to the saving experience that a true Christian enjoys. And yet nothing came of it but false confidence. And the devil uses this to his advantage and presents the counterfeits because even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Many who did mighty works, preached phenomenal sermons, are rejected at the final day. Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And he'll say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. So first, the natural deceit of the human heart. Second, the malicious cunning of the devil. Third, an incorrect view of the Spirit's common influences. And then fourth, a sinful and self-righteous comparison of ourselves with others. That leads to self-deception. Many a false confidence is based upon this. I am not as bad as so-and-so. <laughs> Jesus told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector to some who trusted in themselves. And the Pharisee, as you remember, was quick to point out the flaws of the one who was standing on the other side of the room. He was sadly and tragically self-deceived into thinking that he was righteous because he was looking at him. Solomon says, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And if I compare myself with sinners, I deceive myself into thinking that I'm okay. I'm not Hitler after all. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. One man is not the measure of another. 
God measures all of us by his word. So these four things, the natural deceit of the human heart, the malicious cunning of the devil, the incorrect view of the spirit's influences and the sinful comparison with others, all of those lead to self-deceit. And the Christians in Sardis had deceived themselves. They were spiritually asleep, a religious coma, as it were. And so Jesus says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. And here we have another royal summons to repent and turn back before it's too late. The forms of religion were there. They had orthodox worship. They observed the regulative principle. They had membership and the creed and the ordinances and public worship, and they didn't lack the outward duties, but they were in need of the inward spiritual realities. Paul says of people like them, they're treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. They had little to no faith, no hope, no love, very little of anything that was sincere. And humanly speaking, all they were was a valued artifact. In God's view, they were practically worthless. So the situation was dire, but it wasn't hopeless. There were flickers of life that could be seen among some. And the Lord's warning implies that there is reason for hope, but soon the flame might be extinguished. The lampstand was scarcely burning less and less brightly as the weeks went past. And it was getting exceedingly dim. And so unless steps were taken to reverse the spiritual decline, the church would be no more. And I think it tells us, doesn't it, how dangerous it is to stress the outward orthodoxy while ignoring the inward sincerity? We have our confession. We have our catechisms, which are wonderful things. I'm not trying to denigrate them. But we can never let them substitute for inward sincerity of heart. One might think the church in Sardis was just, well, it's just an elderly, dwindling congregation of well-meaning people. But if that were the case, I doubt they would have had the reputation of being alive. No, the basic problem in Sardis was not visible to the naked eye. They had their programs. They had their activities. There may have been hustle and bustle, but they were spiritually dead. They were on a spiritual ventilator. The Heidelberg Catechism in question 60 says this, God of mere grace grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Even so, as if I never had had nor committed any sin, yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me, inasmuch as I embrace such benefit with a believing heart. Sardis lacked a believing heart. They lacked faith, devotion, gratitude, and zeal. And there were basically three symptoms of their deep spiritual decay. One, there was a lack of vigilance, for they were fast asleep and needed to wake up. Solomon says, slothfulness casts into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. Slothfulness. It applies to the spiritual realm, you know. If we're slothful in spiritual disciplines, it weakens our Christian well-being. 
Don't make the mistake of thinking all is well but simply because there are no problems. Life is smooth. Don't rest content and let things run their course because that's merely indifference. The sluggard dies inside through neglect of prayer and disregard of the truth and careless in his love for others. And so he says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Neither the church nor the soul can flourish if it's not earnest with God. But then secondly, there was worldliness, for such a thing dilutes a Christian's faith and practice. If we cozy up to the world, if we play with temptation, and you know what I'm talking about, we're in danger of soiling our garments. And so Paul says to the Thessalonians, abstain from all appearance of evil. Sophronius was an ancient man who forbade his daughter from visiting a friend. Of course, his daughter at the time resented it. She was offended by it. So we're told in the history books that without speaking, the father took a dead coal from the hearth and he handed the coal to his daughter and he said to her, my daughter, it will not burn you. Go ahead and take it. And when she took the dead coal in her hand, it blackened her hand and stained her white dress. You see, my child, coals, even if they don't burn, they will always blacken. And so it is with the wicked. We need not fear the world, but we must be cautious about the wicked. Keep your heart with all vigilance, we're told, for from it flow the springs of life. Guard every inlet to the soul. Your eye gate, your ear gate, your hand gate, all of them lead to the heart, and nothing is more difficult and necessary, and it requires diligent effort. Be watchful in prayer, be diligent in study, be faithful in worship, and be wary of sin. If the citadel of the heart is overtaken, the whole city of the soul will be ruined. Third, spiritual mediocrity, because their deeds were not complete in the sight of God. Everything was done apparently half-heartedly. There was no zeal. Their deeds were incomplete. Their religious duties were performed with little or no enthusiasm. How is it with you? Is there any enthusiasm? You're here, which is great. Do we do it with enthusiasm? I can honestly say sometimes I don't. And it's not easy. This is why they had no influence in their community. They provoked no hostility. The church in Sardis was so bland that they weren't even worth persecuting. There's an old saying, doing things by halves is worthless because it may be the other half that counts. Anything good requires effort. And that holds true in the spiritual realm. Paul or Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 9, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Works to be done, difficulties to be overcome, talents to be invested, gifts to be used, whatever it is to which God has called you, do it with zeal and all your might. Do not be slothful in zeal, says Paul. Be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. So how are they to remedy this dire situation? Well, Jesus lays out the path to recovery. He says, remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it 
and repent. Return to the life of faith in the gospel, Sardis. Repent from sin and obey my word. The gospel is not complicated. It's shallow enough for lambs to swim, and it's deep enough for elephants to go out in the middle of it. Paul says God put forward Christ Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And in love, God ordained him to it and appointed him to it and anointed him for it and exhibited him in it. And Jesus is our substitute and our Savior, and he died to reconcile us to God. And whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the gospel. And the only reasonable response... The only escape is to receive Christ by faith. But the majority in Sardis had soiled their garments. They were impure in their relationship to Jesus. And apart from a faithful few, the majority of the church was backslidden. So they must return to the basics and start exercising true saving faith. In light of that, God gives his promise. And there are three parts to it. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. And of course, in the Bible, white garments stand for festivity and victory and purity. Guests wear them at a wedding feast, which is why they symbolize festivity. All the Roman citizens dressed in white at a triumph to signify victory. And white is the color of purity. It is the pure in heart who will see God. So believers will be clothed with absolute purity in victory for festivity at the wedding banquet at the end of time. The righteous shall shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's promise number one. Promise number two, I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. Do you know to be erased from the book of, the book of God with shame is one of the worst of all curses? Psalm 69 an imprecatory psalm of sorts. This is one of the curses that he articulates. Let, him, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous, excluded from the covenant, barred from the privileges, cast away from God's presence. This is the eternal role of the citizens of the New Jerusalem, eternal life. And to be blotted out means you don't have any part of it. Sardis, you're not going to have a place in the assembly of saints when they're gathered at the day of judgment. But the name of a sincere Christian will never be blotted out, not even in death. The name will be written in the book of life as an eternal citizen, never to suffer the second death. That's the second promise. So the first promise was to be clothed in white garments, and the second promise was never to be blotted out of the book of life. And the third one is this, I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. And so what counts ultimately is not the approval of the world or of your friends or of your teachers or of anybody else, but what counts is acceptance with God. For all who sincerely believe in Jesus Christ, he, has committed, he is a committed advocate before the Father in heaven. And as you stand before that great white throne, summoned to be judged for everything you have ever thought, said, or did, Christ Jesus will stand next to you 
put his arm around you, plead his merit for you, and in this way acknowledge you to be a true member of heaven. (laughs) That's going to be glorious. And the thing is, Jesus has never lost a case, and he never will. The Father always listens to Christ. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He will confess us before his own Father. So Sardis, wake up. Christian, take heart. Christ is for us, and he's our advocate in heaven. May this be true of all who hear my voice tonight. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.